0: This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly.
1: Episode 181, Is My Aircraft Airworthy? Coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast.
0: Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Hey folks, welcome to the
1: Suck Mike Avcast. We have an interesting crew with us here tonight. I am actually transmitting from Bucolic, North Jersey. Of course, that would be Basking Ridge, where I'm originally from and having a wonderful time up here with family and friends. Uh, I actually, if you get a chance, check out the show notes. I put a picture in the show notes there. And I don't know if I can give it away or not, but it's actually right next to an airport that's closed. And uh, it was the first place that I really got interested in aviation. And we'll talk a little bit more. Actually, I'm going to give it away because it's in my pick of the week. But that's uh, Somerset Airport, Somerset Hills Airport, Somerset Hills Airport in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Not Somerset Airport that's, I guess, under the TFR right now because President Trump is here uh, in Bedminster. It's because it's the one that's a little bit further away in Basking Ridge. Uh, But anyway, joining us today is uh, from the Northeast also is Rick Felty. Hey, Rick, how you doing?
2: Doing well. Nice to be here. Well, I'm sorry about last week, but uh, last show, sorry,
1: oh, but uh, right. glad to be back. Yeah, and uh, one of the original crew, cast and crew, of course, is Rick Felty, so that was an uh, important one there with our seven-year anniversary. That's cool. Uh, the other person that's with us is Tom Frick in the cooler Florida right
3: now. Tom, welcome. Yeah, nice and cool. It's, <laughs> it's been blistering here lately. I'm, I'm starting to think it's summertime again.
1: Wow, you know, we're going to get up into the 90s tomorrow, which is going to be interesting. i got to take off tomorrow morning, so I'm going to do a little density altitude check before I fly out of here. That's for sure. It's going to get up to 99 in two days. It's amazing. Um, I'll make a
2: little, a little note to, to check out my pick of the week later regarding and, density
1: altitude. Yes, cool, cool. <laughs> um, and uh, also with us is Bill English from the heart of Virginia. Bill, welcome.
4: Yeah, steamy here, too. I came into from Seattle this morning. It was 60 degrees, and it's like 90 here, too. I think we're warmer than you guys in Florida, Tom. I don't know. (laughs) Hot and dusty.
3: Amazing thing about air it might be it's it's the humidity that's killing me down here oh, there you go. oh yeah yeah well that's
1: true i mean it really it's not that bad in the northeast as far as nighttime is concerned it does cool off quite a bit and uh, because it, it's less humid i should say and uh, but it does cool off in florida it's just it's different you can tell the air is uh, density is different et cetera. it's really uh, a, a lot different up here and they do get breaks but they're not going to get a break this week it's going to be super hot so make sure you check Your density, altitude. Do your calculations before you take off. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here. So, anyway, let's get on with the show.
0: Let's do the pre-flight.
1: You know, we had uh, a listener write in recently and uh, asked if we could just discuss, you know, how we determine if our aircraft is airworthy. Uh, There was a recent crash in Daytona Beach. It was an Arrow, Piper Arrow. And it really caused this person to think more about determining... If an airplane is airworthy you know from a legal standpoint but more so from a practical standpoint and he also wanted to know how to determine if a school a club or maybe the fbo you rent from has airworthy airplanes these are all really good questions Uh, i what we're going to do today we're going to mention a little little bit about the rules right we're going to talk a little bit uh, a little technical but not too much but this might be a little more philosophical and will help you go forward and picking your school, your FBO, and maybe the club that you want to fly with. Uh, airworthiness is an important thing, and it's something that we all should be concerned about, no matter what type of aircraft we fly. So before we start that discussion, though, a uh, couple things. Uh, first of all, in our pre-flight checklist, we have a sponsor, aviationcareerspodcast.com scholarships. You can uh, further your skills and do something fun winning one of these scholarships for a new rating, a training, or some type of flight experience. It's for everybody. And uh, we just added two more. The June 29th edition uh, just came out, and it's an online scholarships guide. It's uh, the OX5 Aviation Pioneer Scholarship. It's a flight training scholarship between $250 to $1,000. Another one, which is the Charles J. Colgan Aviation and Aerospace Scholarship, is actually in Virginia, and that's one for Two thousand dollars, and that's with the VABA, which is let's see, help me out, Bill English. It's the Virginia
0: Virginia
4: Aviation Business Association. Okay. I had it. I had it up, and it went away.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that's good enough. The Vision Aviation <laughs> Business Association. Uh, the word Colgan, I think some people know of, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's an old old name that's been around aviation for a while. So this is a terrific scholarship they, they have placed out there. So hats off to them. And that's our, for our sponsors. Well, first, w- another thing that we are doing, too, we've always done announcements. And if you have a shout-out or announcement you want to tell us about, a news item, send it in to us. We'll discuss it. Um, but we really want to start doing a little more news items. I know I've gotten feedback from both the co-hosts here and also you, the listener, uh, that you want something that's more current, that type of thing. So we're going to give it a try here, and I think we really are, are on to something here. I think this is a great thing to do is start bringing some news items to you. So our first news news item for today is uh, well you know in the AOPA did a great article and I love how they title this it says FAA cuts cost of training proficiency instrument and sport pilots big beneficiaries you know on uh, June 27th which is uh, a couple days ago uh, the FAA published a, a final rule it's going to allow a much uh, broader use of technology and also really reduce the cost of flight training and maintaining proficiency, uh, you know, and that's through the use of, you know, all sorts of different things like simulators, advanced uh, ATDs, advanced training devices. And uh, I think it's a wonderful rule that they've put in place here. Uh, This is something that I think one of the things that we've also looked at is uh, being able to get your commercial certificate also has been something that, I know myself, even though I haven't been doing a lot of flight training for the commercial, has been a little bit more difficult because of the fact that, you know, you're looking for a plane that's a complex aircraft, both for your commercial and your CFI. And now for those check rides, you do not have to have that complex or that commercial aircraft, excuse me, that complex aircraft for the commercial or the CFI, which I think is a a really big leap forward. And Tom Frick, I kind of wanted to bring you into the conversation here with this is that one of the things I think it really affects is is the flight skills and flight training. And I'm wondering, even though it's a really new rule, have you felt the effects of it in your flight training environment?
3: Not initially, no. I mean, it, it's as we're looking at the rule and, and moving forward with it, um, we're trying to see what kind of impact it's going to have and, and only – time will tell, you know, I mean, initially we haven't felt anything. It's, it's, um, it's really new and people are still trying to wrap their heads around this because, um, you know, these changes come on the heels of, of, you know, some of the other changes with, uh, using, um, complex aircraft or having to have a complex aircraft for doing a commercial or a CFI. Um, and you know, some of that's starting to be felt already, you know, and I'm wondering how this rule is going to affect us as well.
1: Yeah, and so they they kind of tie in together. I think it's they they're both are very similar. Uh, as far as in your school, you have the uh, and I'm assuming that it sometimes the having the complex aircraft would would be a, you know a little bit of a challenge, wouldn't it,
3: in trying to schedule check rides and actual training? Sure, it always has been, and and you know the 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 fleet of complex aircrafts for training has dwindled over the years you know um you know traditionally a lot of flight schools used the piper arrow because it was it was the perfect platform to teach complex to a student and and they were becoming um harder and harder to come by you know and then in light of the uh, incident that was in Daytona Beach kind of just finally put the put the rule on that that uh, they they weren't going to use it for uh for um the uh practical tests anymore mm mm-hmm. mhm
1: so I think that's it's a wonderful thing for those that are out there trying to find these aircraft and uh, kind of leads into some of the things, especially what we're about to talk about with airworthiness. And, uh, and you know, what if you have a complex aircraft, because there's not as many out there, that may have an issue with airworthiness that they're saying a directive that's put out, an emergency airworthiness directive where you, your whole fleet is down. Uh, this can actually mitigate some of those problems, although there is still some training that has to be done in a complex aircraft. But
3: uh, but anyway, going go ahead. Sorry, Tom, you want to say? Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, the onus is on the flight instructor now to to uh, or, or for for a student to go to a flight instructor and, and get their complex endorsement before they take the checkride. Right. Right. And
1: but that's something that's that can be done uh, outside of the the checkride because uh, you know honestly. I've seen it happen so many times. The day of the check ride the complex aircraft fails, you know, there's some or something breaks. And now it goes offline, you can do the rest of the check ride, then you have to come back and do the demonstrated ability in the complex, you know, gear down, emergency extensions, that type of thing. I think this will relieve quite a few schools. I could be wrong in some cases, but I think it is a great thing, that's for sure.
4: Um, but well, go, go ahead. Well Carl, yeah, this is Billy, you know, there's another part of this as well. If you dig down deep into this rule um coming down the pike in a couple of months there is an amendment that they haven't yet written but you'll notice this in the rule the use of less expensive technically advanced airplanes so Uh your ga airplanes like the da-40s and and cirruses and you have to look at the you've got a cost issue there or a liability issue and a safety benefit think of this um there's not too many people that hurt themselves real bad with gear-up landings, but managing that technically advanced airplane now, uh, putting that into the commercial tri- commercial training syllabus could be a great, great safety benefit.
1: Oh, I agree. I very much agree. Um, speaking of, of benefits, it's kind of interesting. There's uh, Just kind of summarizing, I, I'm not sure we really did that as far as you know what kind of changes are coming up here. Um, some of the things that are coming out of this new rule... Uh, or let's take a look at certain things like the frequency uh, interval to accomplish instrument proficiency experience in the ATD, in the ATD, advanced training device, is going to be reduced from every two months to every six months. And it also allows for combos in the aircraft and also the advanced training device uh, to actually get those requirements. So I think that's really cool. Um, another thing that I think is something that is, is a big bonus both in time savings and money, is the sport pilot training is going to be credited towards certificates and ratings, uh, which is cool. I think it's that's going to be something that you know, airplanes and airplane in my mind. Um, also, something that I think is going to be interesting to see uh, is logging this time because normally, whenever you're flying right in a simulator, you actually have to have a flight instructor there, right? An instructor has to be there. Well, there's actually the Presence of an instructor is going to be no longer required in any of the flights, full flight simulators, flight t- training devices, or the advanced training device. And uh, you know, there's a little difference in those for some that are new. You know, full flight simulators, the ones that are moving up and down. Advanced training device, it's a stationary device but has the characteristics of an aircraft. An advanced training device is is more like a PC-driven thing that, at times, in my opinion, can be more uh, in tune with a flight training device and the actual aircraft it's really amazing how far we've come uh, especially with uh, some of the the redbirds and that type of thing that are out there and bill i think you actually have some of those at your school right the redbirds and i think this is going to impact you
4: yeah we yeah i'm uh, uh we've got redbird at the uh place where i fly and at the day job and uh yeah, they're it's pretty amazing. I mean, I've I've been in, you know, all the way from the, you know, the airline type simulators and and the Redbird and they're pretty darn close. That's uh it's definitely uh I mean, I'm sure there's going to be people on both sides of the argument, you know, with uh, not having the instructor in there. There there's a there's a arguments on both sides of it, but definitely as far as keeping the cost down and getting people in there and doing some work, um certainly seems like it'll be a plus.
1: Right. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. Getting back to another point too, you made it already. I'm just summarizing some of these things. Is using uh, less expensive, technically advanced airplanes to be allowed for the commercial pilot training? Uh, it also is a benefit, just like you said, Bill, because uh, we are flying much more complex aircraft with many more systems, and uh, we're managing more systems. I mean, heck, that's what they do in the airline pilot world: manage, manage uh, systems, and going forward. Um, the other thing too that I think is pretty cool. Uh, I, and I'm very happy about this. Is the sport pilot instructors are now going to be allowed to provide training uh, and for instrument training, which I I think you know for endorsements and that kind of thing you have to have those. But it, moving forward, we're actually going to be able to allow those people, the people that are sport pilot instructors, to give instrument training. So uh, it's just it's it's a, a whole new world. I think the FAA has realized that. Um, with the advent of new instructional techniques and also aircraft and systems, uh, we all pretty much are are working on the same page. And, uh, you know, airplane's and airplane. Uh, and I understand that there's going to be some other opinions out there, but I think they do recognize uh, the importance of using these dr- devices and also the accuracy of the devices. I don't know if you remember, uh, you know, when I started doing my instrument training, it was one of those devices that sat on top of a you know a table and there was like hardly any computer input at all
4: oh yeah (laughs) and
1: and it was it was quite interesting There were actual instruments on on the device uh and nowadays you can simulate so much weather the visibility is incredible uh when i first saw redbird i was like wow Uh, i almost feel like i'm i'm in the airplane so that's absolutely terrific but uh anyway we summarize the rule it's uh if you want to check out more about it, just go online. We have some links to that new, uh, and it's exciting for us as instructors and those people that are out there in the in the world giving instructing because now things have changed. Uh, one of the things that I think that's changed, it's going to be a big benefit. There are a lot of technically advanced aircraft out there, uh, and I know that uh, I think that some people, and I'm, I'm not sure, Rick, if yours was considered a technically advanced aircraft, did you have the – in uh, the aircraft you trained in initially, was it the, yeah. it was a technically advanced aircraft or not? Or was uh, it was like the standard gauges?
2: You're going to have to remind me. No, it was technically advanced. It okay. was a standard yeah. gauge. Yeah. Okay. In fact, in fact, I had to, the, the school had a mostly, you know, glass planes of various kinds. They had some, but I, I, I ended up having to fly in one just to, just to try it out, you know, a six pack.
1: Oh, wow.
4: Because I
2: hadn't, hadn't flown in one.
4: Right.
1: right.
2: So my training was really exclusively uh, glass. Cool. Yeah, Yeah. it looks
4: looks like what they're saying, Carl, is it's not final written yet, but if it has an electronic PFD, an M F D and a two axis autopilot. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah. So you know, Cirrus and Diamond and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if they're fixed gear.
1: Right, right, exactly. Cool. So, so most of those aircraft are technically advanced, and I'm glad you actually clarified that. I thought I said that, but thank you. Uh, the One of the things that's interesting is, uh, you know, again, figuring out if I do have uh, one that's an actually, you know, technically advanced aircraft or not. So the uh, interestingly, too, I think, Rick, you've, you've actually you got to fly steam gauges, but some of the people that are out there have never actually flown aircraft uh with actual steam gauges on them.
2: Yeah, I, I mean I, I would say I I've hardly done it. <laughs> you know, it really is it was a small number of, of flights and I think it was with CFIs every time. Um so I don't know that I ever was alone in a in a plane with steam gauges. Right,
1: right. Now Tom, you you actually I think most of your training was done in a Cirrus or
3: something like that I think, right? Actually, it was a Cessna 172 G1000, and I, I didn't fly any steam gauges or, you know, analog gauges until I already had a private pilot certificate. And actually, I was kind of um, a little bit hesitant to get in the plane, you know, because the only, the only place I'd flown gauges is on a simulator, you know, on a desktop at home. And that was the only reason I did it. And when I got in, it was like, oh, yeah, this all works. That's cool. <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, every, everything before that had been uh, all G1000 stuff. So, and, and I guess that would have been technically advanced. It had an autopilot. So, with the autopilot, a PFD, an MFD, it would have qualified for this to Right.
1: And one of the things that you are seeing forward, I, I forgot you done here in the 172, you do a lot of Cirrus training. That's why I was thinking that. And yeah. yep. one, one of the things I, I wonder, your opinion on this, is if you're, you're teaching in, in a technically advanced aircraft and you're also teaching complex aircraft with this new rule going forward um do you think that this is beneficial uh for overall safety and in training
3: yes and no i don't know i'm I'm just still trying to wrap my head around it you know And, and time will tell again you know over time um and the types of pilots that i'll get and you know when flight reviews come due and and when you get people who are going to training you know i know that um after the incident over in Daytona that, you know, um, uh, several local DPs that they, there was a, I guess there was a big meeting. I guess they had all gotten together and there was, you know, a uh, discussion about it and a lot of them didn't want to get in the plane, you know? And, and so that was playing into that decision. And now moving forward with, with, um, using a technically advanced aircraft as opposed to a complex aircraft, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's showing that the FAA is recognizing that, um, you know we're evolving as far as our um avionics and and what we're using in the plane and the type of technologies that we're getting i mean we're all flying with ipads now we've got nice little devices that are giving us all sorts of information Um, the advent of ADS-B is playing into it you know i mean i can see all sorts of stuff just on my tablet never mind what's in the airplane and and the amount of information that i have while i'm flying through the sky has has really evolved so this rule, to me, is playing into that. It's, it's, it's recognizing that we are moving forward, we are evolving, and and this is how it's going to start uh, playing out in the future. And how that works out with pilots remains to be seen, I think.
1: And I, I think you're correct. I mean, there's, there's a lot that has to be seen in the future. I know they're going to be monitoring that process. But I I do find that with all these systems, that people do have a tough time going from some of the older to the newer I know now most of the trainings in the techni- newer, meaning technically advanced aircraft. but I mean, we saw this at the airlines where there were some people that could not make the switch to glass and more technically advanced aircraft, and they decided, "You know what? I, I don't want to do this anymore," and, and left, uh, interestingly enough.
3: Sure. And, and you know, I'm, I see it just on the initial training side as well, because the, the, the technically advanced aircraft are still traditionally more expensive. You know, um, depending on how technically advanced is how much more you're going to pay for it. So the old analog um, gauge airplanes, you know, that are still flying and still being maintained well you know, are traditionally cheaper to fly. And that's that's what I'm seeing as well. As people come in and they're they're trying to do this on a budget and they're they're trying to get through it as um, inexpensively as they can. They want good training. They want to be able to fly. But, you know, they're thinking, well, I'll learn this stuff further down the road. Where I had the opposite line of thinking. I paid the extra for the the technically advanced aircraft and I think it paid off in spades moving down the road. I think I'm a lot more comfortable with the way that the technology has gone through and you're right i see a lot of people too that that have a hard time making the transition from the old analog gauges to the newer flat screens
1: yeah and uh and sometimes being an old guy in an airplane i do the same thing i mean i fly a technically advanced aircraft and uh for my day job and i turn a lot of stuff off i mean when i'm getting close to an airport and they're trying
3: information overload oh my
1: gosh it's just you know what let's just turn off the auto thrust and let's just i see the runway i'm going to put it down there you know and that's something that i think we at times when we are flying technically advanced aircraft we tend not to do that uh actually just hand fly etc we're so used to Actually, letting all this automation bring us down that that path, which is a whole nother discussion, so we won't go down that. Uh, but very interesting. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm really interesting to see how this plays out, and I think this is a very uh, very good rule that's going to save us a lot of money and time, and I think it's uh, something that's going to be uh, looked at in the future, and I think it's going to work out. Uh, I'm a very positive person, of course, and uh, rose-colored glasses sometimes, but I really think this is this is really really exciting. Uh, for what you said, I think as far as cost savings. I think there is going to be a cost savings for for most people. For some, maybe not. Just like you said, Tom. So, uh, I think it's a terrific uh, advancement for for aviation in general. Now entering cruise flight. You know what you said though was interesting about the the arrow because of uh, it leads us into, you know, our, our cruise flight today and in, in our discussion. You know, there was a, an accident uh, over in Daytona Beach where. Uh, a wing separated from an arrow and uh, it looks like or it is uh, I know there's not a final ruling but it it really is is moving towards the fact that there was a structural failure and uh, one of the questions that comes up from many people is like gosh you know should I fly that airplane because how do I know that that aircraft is airworthy and that issue with that airplane has happened with many different types of aircraft out there where something has come up in in their maintenance in their past where people doubted the airworthiness of an aircraft. Um, I used to fly Piper Tomahawks all the time and, and many people wouldn't get in the airplane with me because they didn't feel it was an airworthy aircraft. Same thing with, with you can name your airplane and there's people of the opinion that, oh, that's not an airworthy aircraft. So there's this discussion about whether the aircraft is airworthy. We want to talk more from the standpoint of not so much technically what is an airworthy aircraft although we're going to mention that we could discuss that for hours and there's many courses out there and I do a course on on how to determine your aircraft is airworthy and it's quite interesting because of the fact that you really need to pull from a lot of paperwork all of what we do is paperwork that's for sure but in general you're putting a lot and this this is something that's I think at times hard to swallow is you're putting a lot of trust in other people when you're working in the aviation environment, especially when it comes to airworthiness. And to go from the real simple side of things, you know, I work for an airline and the thing that I have to look for, how do I determine my aircraft is airworthy? Well, you know, I am the pilot in command and the rule does say out there, and we'll link to it, that I'm responsible for determining if that aircraft is airworthy. One of the ways that we do it is there's an actual line that it's an airworthiness release. And it is a release from a mechanic that says this aircraft is airworthy. And one of the things that we ha- we wind up doing is putting a lot of trust in those mechanics. Just like you do with your aircraft that you either rent, you own, uh, that you're in a club with. You put a lot of faith in that in that mechanic but you also need to verify a lot of things uh, as far as airworthiness is concerned and you know this is a general discussion right now but get there's always something it seems in a certain aircraft that you really want to look towards to make sure that that aircraft is airworthy. A good example is the plane that I fly for work um, there are some clips on the cowling for the for the engine and those clips and those fasteners uh, have come off, and it, it's a very dramatic thing for the for the passengers to see the cowling come off of the engine, and it's dramatic in general. Uh, but it's it's something we can prevent through our actually going there and making sure that the mechanic did do that, but also physically checking on that. So that's one good example. Just like if someone put oil into the aircraft, we need to check that oil by actually looking at that aircraft and making sure it's airworthy. One of the things I, I think we need to do is, is when we look at those those regulations, and it's really simple. Uh, and the reg that I was actually talking towards for those that want to know is 917. And you know, we it says basically it's real simple. No person may operate a civil aircraft unless it's in an airworthy condition, and the pilot in command of the civil aircraft is responsible for determining whether that aircraft is in a condition for safe flight. And and also, it, it continues on, and this is about being in flight, the pilot in command shall discontinue the flight when unworthy mechanical, electrical, structural conditions uh, occur. So, uh, but, but we're talking more on moving forward, trying to figure out if our aircraft is airworthy. The person that wrote in to me about this, we actually had a very frank discussion, and this is where I want to open this up uh, to a lot of our, our co-hosts here, is that, he wanted to know, he, and and this was, uh, you know, he didn't want me to mention his name, but it, it really, um, it's some great questions. How do I, if I'm going to a flight school, how do I know? I mean, how do I, you know, I, I feel really, and this is him talking, I feel really uncomfortable going into a flight school and asking for their, you know, their records, their maintenance records. So uh, I'll start, first of all, with Tom, because you do work in a flight school, if if someone was to walk in the door, could they actually see those records?
3: Absolutely. To every one of our planes, those records are there, we, we, and we do it constantly. You know, you walk you walk in, you request to see the maintenance records, and they're brought to you, and you sit there and you can peruse through them to your heart's content to make sure that you know all of the um, airworthiness things are taken care of, that 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 the things maintained properly. You know, you're basically your aviates acronym, right? You know, so that your annual inspections are done, that your BOR has been checked, that your 100 hour is done, that your ELT is taken care of, that your transponder, your altimeter, all of those things are up to code the way that they're supposed to be and signed off on. And then um, all of the ADs, airworthiness directives. Um, I teach my students that, you know, when when they do their arrow acronym and they go in and Find the airworthiness certificate. You know, I ask them, does that thing expire? No, it does not. But it needs to be kept current, just like your pilot certificate does. You know, and those airworthiness directives need to be checked. And, um, yeah, if anybody ever feels bad about going into a flight school, you know, if they're making them feel bad for going in there and asking for records, they're at the wrong flight school. Um, I think those records are are meant to be... Open to all of the pilots who are flying those airplanes, so that they can see them, because we're required. You, you just mentioned it. 917 says, you as the pilot in command. You're responsible for the airworthiness of that airplane." You know, um, when I started working for this flight school, I spent an entire day doing nothing but just going through. You know, I went plane by plane and checked every one of its records up and down. And now I go back on a regular basis to make sure. That um, that, that the maintenance is being taken care of. Yes, there's somebody else working on it, and yes, we put a lot of trust into our mechanics, but at the end of the day, I'm responsible. So I want to I see those records, and I want to be able to um, make sure that uh, the plane is airworthy. Tom, you had
1: mentioned a couple of acronyms that you use, and uh, although obviously not sanctioned by the FAA, uh, it is, they are great <laughs> memory items. Uh, I w- maybe we could put those in the show notes for the folks, but uh, you talked about ARROW first, right? Sure. Um, and then the next one was for actually looking at at the maintenance records, right? Yep. Um,
3: was was 8
1: Right, av 8 So we'll have those in the with show. The, notes. With
3: the I being the number one. Yep. Yeah. Number
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> one One of the things, though, that's interesting, and I'm wondering if you guys do this because we, we do this also is in those. Uh, let's take hundred hour inspection Let's let's go with that. Are does your school uh, like many others enable you to figure out if the 100 hour inspection is close to being due by looking at something other than the
3: logbooks. Sure. We we um our our uh we basically keep a binder with every airplane with the keys to the aircraft, hob sheets and all that other stuff. And, and our maintenance logs and times are kept right in that. They're they're kept track of on a computer, on our flight scheduling system. They can look at them there as well and they can see how much longer it is. And the flight school I work for not only does 100 hour inspections, we also do 50 hour inspections. Um, we go above and beyond. Um, we're also a part 141 school in Part of our syllabus says, you know, our TCO says that we would do fifty-hour inspections on the plane, so all of our planes get fifty-hour inspections. So it, it, it's double what it's what's actually required.
1: So going back to that, as far as uh, any type of airworthiness directives that have uh, actually been applied or not, <laughs> or any any just any general maintenance, one of the things though that we do just and that's why i asked you this is that we trust that document a lot of times don't we Uh, we don't look at our logbooks every time we go out and fly and for those that are starting out flying it's like well don't you just check them it's like no because we there therefore we're putting trust in somebody aren't we tom
3: oh absolutely and like i said i i go back and check records fairly frequently but i don't do it every day And, and maybe i should i don't i don't know that i have the time to do it every day um a lot of times it's 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 keeping track. There's, there's records that I can do. I'm aware of what its maintenance cycle is and what the intervals are. I've, I've looked at the records up to a certain point, And now I know that, okay, it's due in a 50 hour. And when the 50 hour is done, I go back to the book and so I go, okay, look, they changed some oil and they, they changed the clip on the seat and whatever else, you know, they might've found in, in that inspection and corrected and signed off on. and And now I'm back up to date again.
1: So, if someone's, you know, new to aviation or has their private or, or when they were new, um, they looked at the airplane and trusted their CFI. I know, Rick, when when you were learning how to fly, the instructor, in the beginning, you put a lot of trust in your instructor, obviously. But during <coughs> no. that process, Rick, did that instructor go over with you at some point how to determine whether this place is airworthy?
2: Sure. I mean, certainly as a part of knowing how to pass the check checkride, as I recall, you need to be able to speak to that, mm-hmm. I think. Am I right? Yes. And uh, so I remember at that point it happening. But, you know, in terms of uh, explaining that I could ask them, you know, just, you know, the kind of discussion we just had, um, not necessarily. If I look back on it, it was certainly a lot of trust. Um, they... Uh, we, you know, we did. We obviously everything was logged, and and it was, you know, you're you're jumping in and you're looking at the numbers and comparing them to logbook, and if something's off, then and nothing was ever off. So you know, there's a consistency there that felt like, the reporting and record keeping, was was, you know, up up to speed and there weren't a lot of oops, we forgot to do this one. You know, the planes came off the line when it felt like they were supposed to. So I guess there was a sense of trust and a sense of all evidence pointing to the trustworthiness of the school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I, I did not, I, I, you know, I, I think I just fell back on that and I did not ask to see anything. And I do agree that if you ask and. There's a problem with that, then you should not be there. That's not a school to okay. go to because if they aren't open about it, some there's a reason. Um, I think that's a good
1: point, Rick. I mean, the other uh, thing
2: I know, ours were also, you know, the, the, it was Cirrus, and, and, and the ones we had were privately owned, but sort of leased to the school. Which was a you know a cost offset for the owner right. kind of. So there was also a person involved who I who I knew and I met and I sort of treated his plane, you know, as if it was my own in that sense. Just here's a here's a person. This isn't just a, you know, a tractor or a school bus or a thing that's just cranking it out. This has this has a personal connection to somebody who invested in it and and I know that the school had to respect that too and did and so it all felt um, well managed. But yes, definitely, I did not go through the stuff <laughs> for sure right. it was trust you know and and you know we had some weird we had some weird problems occasionally because i i think at the time the cirrus cirrus was a tough plane to to pound a lot on the, the back in the day maybe they're, they're you know maybe they handle that wear and tear better now but certainly there's a lot to take care of
1: right interestingly though it seems just from you tom said it is there's, there's a lot when we're going out renting, there's a lot of judgment call here, isn't there? I mean, we're we're sitting there yeah. saying that just if, if it doesn't look good, you, you need to run away. Um, and Rick, I think as an yeah. example to further that, there's a flight school that I went to where they actually, you had to use two keys to get at their books, their log books. You had to get into one place and then to another place. And it was incredibly difficult to find anybody who had both those keys. And in that case, uh, oh. I decided to run away, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, after yeah. I, I discovered that. And in your case, you actually had a face to put towards the airplane owner. And, yeah. Which was really cool. Who I would see, you know, the he was. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And I would see him and, and, you know, cross paths. He was taking the plane for the weekend, you know. Uh, and, uh, and I was aware of it, you know. It was, it was so. There's, yeah. But I think if I think about it all, in my case, there was a sense. And overall, if I looked at all the data in front of me, the people I met, the numbers that we were checking, the way maintenance was handled, uh, the ownership thing, uh, it all added up to something that felt right. But, but I think if it hadn't felt right, you know, I would have, I would have known. And but, it, again, it was a bit. It probably is a dice roll in that sense because you're, you're hopping in, and you know. Hoping it's all good.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> because you trust these people, you know exactly. And uh, I mean, look at this airplane that went down in Daytona. I mean, there's nothing that I feel goes more towards the core of a pilot, in, in as far as helplessness, than a wing falling off an airplane. And uh, you you sit there and say to yourself, well, you know, if the wing, you jokingly say, if the wing falls off, we just won't go flying. Well, this happened. And it happened possibly, we don't know, uh, due to uh, maybe something missed during a maintenance inspection, maybe something that wasn't either done properly or maybe everything was done properly. And uh, it was just, you know, fatigue and and it's something that we may have to look at more towards, say, in the aging aircraft. And there's a lot of older aircraft out there, and that's something yeah. al- also in that discussion. you know with the you're talking about the new Sirius, you also having you know you were talking about pounding and the and you know the landings, et cetera, that it was having some issues there. and uh, yeah,
2: there was a sense that that in fact, I think ultimately the school transitioned to another owner and I don't, they, they still are flying some Sirius but but it was it was sort of looked at as a great thing and a very challenging thing because of uh, just big because, anyway. But, you know, nothing ever was wrong. It just – there was a lot of downtime uh, at times. Um, and,
1: norm- so. and normally we associate that with, with older airplanes that are, you know, getting fatigue oh, right. a- and aging. Now you're associating that with a newer airplane. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, but there are unique things to older aircraft. As a matter of fact, uh, there's some, some great stuff out there. We'll have links to it on in the show notes of, of looking at your airplane. And if you're thinking of buying one, so there's a couple articles you really should read and um, – One's by Mike Bush. Uh, he talks about a horror story. And um, a good example that he uses, and it's similar to the horror story that I had, one of, uh, actually the gentleman was a Tuskegee Airman, and he purchased a Piper, and I think it was a Warrior, and he wound up having to replace the wing spar on that. And that became a very expensive item. When he purchased that aircraft, uh, w- he thought it was in an airworthy condition, and it wasn't. And he went from, you know, having hardly any bills to a $35,000 bill off the bat. Uh, so when we're looking at older aircraft and aircraft that have been around for a while and where they've been, that type of thing, we have to consider the aging aircraft. And there's a lot of really good articles there about this. But the more important point here is what if, you know, I'm going to a, a school or somewhere where that or if an airport where I have an airplane where what if i don't know any mechanics how do I de- do i determine who's the best mechanic around a lot of times i ask around that's what i do and uh, it's really really interesting to To find somebody because you do when you go out there and you talk to people it's uh it's really some it's a way to get in a network you know there's no what are they that online service they have for like homes you know there's no home advisor or whatever that's out there for aircraft mechanics etc uh you really have to you know trust your friends and that type of thing so uh, interesting stuff really really interesting stuff there One of the things though I think that when we are looking at an aircraft and and we are thinking about flying, there is a consideration about that as far as the older aircraft and uh, and those type of things. So and there's you know, we discussed this, there's a possibility that maybe there was something that wasn't followed on this specific aircraft, and I think that's come out in the in the news and I'm not so sure in any of the reports online with the NTSB, that's who I like to follow as actual NTSB. But uh, and I didn't get an update in the past day or two on that. But with that said, your airplane is most important. That is the most important thing. Is does your airplane comply? Is all the ADs it complied with? Are all the service bulletins complied with? Are uh, how do you determine that? You look at the logbooks. But really, really importantly, you know, again, who is doing your, you know, who's doing all your your maintenance? You know, who's the person that's in charge? And I think that's something that we have to look at. And, uh, and one of the things, I think, Tom, you mentioned this, is in, besides using our judgment, we have to use our judgment in actually the person that we are having maintain our aircraft. One of the things that's interesting, and I'd like to hear it from you, Tom, is that you're around at mechanics uh, quite a bit. Um, how I'm assuming the local you know, flight instructors and fo- folks at the airport must have some way to determine, hey, who, who's the good mechanic around here?
3: Sure. And, and, you know, the, um, one of the fields I work on, there's, well, actually both fields that I work off mostly have several, um, places where people get their planes worked on. Um, the particular school I work for, we have two different facilities and, um, you know, along this line of who's working on your airplane, um, you know, um, one of the aircraft that we have in our fleet is actually owned by a mechanic who works for a different company on the field. So he maintains his own aircraft. So I have to go someplace else to find the the maintenance logs for that book, which they're the same way. All I got to do is walk in and say, Hey, I want to see the books for this tail number. And they go, Oh, here you go. And they'll let me sit down and, and peruse them to my heart's content. And when I'm satisfied, I give them back to them and, and, and we go about our way. It was kind of odd at first. Cause like I've, I've Developed a rapport with the mechanics that are on uh, work for the flight school that I I work at, and um, you know I know who these guys are, and 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 I talk to them, and I talk to them about issues I see in the plane, and when things come up, they fix it, and you know. They're relying on me as much as I'm relying on them sometimes because, you know, I'm their eyes and ears with the aircraft that they're trying to take care of, which, by the way, the, the mechanics that we have are very passionate about making sure that they're, the aircraft they're responsible for are in, in just absolute top-notch condition. And, um, you know, they, they appreciate a pilot who can go through and help them to troubleshoot. But give them good information so that they, when there's an issue with an airplane or there's these little squirrely incidents or, or uh, mechanical bugs that go on that are hard to track down, they appreciate as much information as they possibly can get so they can fix those things, get it in the maintenance logs, and then get it up and flying again. So, um, yeah, that, that odd situation of having another mechanic, I, I wasn't familiar with this guy, and it took me a little while to develop a little bit of a rapport with him to where I was... Um, my, my my trust level had gone up after a while when I when I realized that you know he was just as passionate about working on airplanes and making sure that his airplane was was um going to be a a very airworthy um, aircraft.
1: Airworthiness really does get personal, and uh, you know there's there's a lot of as I say best practices out there. You know, looking at logbook entries and the records, and you know the type certificate data sheets, etc. You know your ADs and all, and their uh, you know STCs. But really the most important thing is that relationship we have with our, with our mechanic because it, it's great that the logbook is, is all there but, and, and everything's in order and all the paperwork's done, but it's really what's going forward that's most important. And moving forward every day I think is very important with a good mechanic.
3: Sure, and and you know one of the terms that I heard you use was was the ADs, the Airworthiness Directives, and I heard you use service bulletins, and Airworthiness Directives are required to be in the maintenance logs, and they're very easy to find. The service bulletins, not so much. You know, a service bulletin doesn't necessarily need to be complied with the same way that an airworthiness directive has to be. And in that light, you know, there's a lot of times where the service bulletins are a little harder to find, where you have to go out and do a little bit more research on your own. Um, there there may be service bulletins that are out there that were basically recommendations to do to an aircraft. And, you know, the mechanic can look at it and go, well, you know, well, I don't, I don't think we need to do this. Or there's something that... That Something else that, that keeps us looking at this, but um, you know they do exist, they are out there, and, and these are things that the manufacturers put out that say, "Hey, you might want to check this." you know so there is that gray area with, with, between those two documents.
1: You know another really good resource too, and, and talking about that gray area and the, the service bolt-ins, but one of the resources I use, especially when I'm looking for a new aircraft, is uh, and this is going to sound strange, is the NTSB. Uh, I look at NTSB reports and do searches on those aircraft, and I, I try to see if there's something that's possibly, you know, a weakness in that aircraft. And, uh, and if there's something that keeps coming up and there's a failure, et cetera, maybe it's something like a shuttle valve uh, that's been changed on an aircraft finally. And now now that I have that knowledge, when I go forward and I go fly, say, uh, what's it, the, the Technum. Uh, I make sure that that shovel valve is, has been replaced or the the new ones in there that's been been required, you know, and that's one of the things that I love to do is do research into those and just, uh, you know, even with the FA has databases on the, the difficulty, what do they call it, uh, s- uh, service difficulty reports online. You can take a look there, too. There's so many cool places. And another thing that I think is one of the best places to go is those type clubs. I mean... Those are really cool. You go online. Uh, sometimes you have to be an owner, but I think there's ones where you don't have to be. Um, and I think, like, Tom, you actually, and I, forgive me for remembering this or not, uh, you went to a lot of training with Cirrus, and I think you're a Cirrus authorized instructor, correct?
3: No, that's correct.
1: Okay. So with that, I'm going to go to you, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm thinking of buying a Cirrus. I know nothing. Could you help me and tell me what are the Achilles heels here? What do I need to look for? And I think that's that's a great way to be, and I'm, I'm sure there's like one or two things you could probably
3: tell me, right? So. Um, yeah, um, there there isn't really, you know, I I don't know of any just off the top of my head that are saying, you know, oh, you got to be really careful of this, you know. Um, and again, it may have, it may have come in of, um, you know, there there are RADs that are out on on. Um, you know on some of the, the Cirrus products that I've flown and uh, you know the the lists aren't as long because like you, you fly a 1976 Cessna it's had some ADs you know there's uh-huh. there's a big long list of them you know you fly a 2010 or even a, we've got a 2016 Cirrus the list of ADs is not quite as long you know they, they haven't come up with them yet or they haven't come to fruition or however however they come to evolve you know because I mean a lot of that stuff is Time. I, I liken it to my students like this that the ADs come out. It's basically if you were thinking about your car, it's a recall, right? It's something that after the manufacturer put the plane together and, and it's out there, they realize, like, oh, you know what? Maybe this little valve over here needs to be checked more often. We told you it needs to be checked every six months. We found out you're probably better off checking it every three months. And that's how they'll do it is through an airworthiness directive. But it's basically a, a recall for the airplane. Gotcha.
1: You know, there's a lot of different resources, and we've talked quite a bit about. Uh, things that might help people, and you're listening right now. You might want to know what those are, and are. And I, I have them in the show notes, and I think you should really go out there. Just like uh, we were discussing the service bulletins, and um, there's service difficulty reports, etc. There's some really cool stuff that's been put together about how to maintain aircraft and old aircraft. And it was like the it, it was the uh, Antique Aircraft Association. I saw it, but it was actually I think uh, spurred by AOPA. I think, but there's a report out there. Uh, it just talks about maintaining older airplanes, and I think that applies to any airplane, not just aging uh, aircraft, but any aircraft and there's a lot of really good information in there and it's actually here I found it. it's the best practices guide for maintaining aging general aviation airplanes and it's uh, it, it was actually something that was put together and endorsed by AOPA and the antique airplane Association uh, along with all these other folks in the FAA, et cetera so we'll have a link to that yeah, but in general, you know as we we start wrapping up here. Um, I'd like to know if, you know, looking at our airworthiness of our aircraft and and actually making somebody like this person that wrote into us and I had a discussion with on the phone, you know, how do we really make sure that that person is more comfortable with the airworthiness of the aircraft that they're flying? And I think a big part of it is, like uh, Tom said, using your judgment, uh, is getting out there and and talking to those people at the air at the airport. Um, I know, Bill. I I didn't get to you as much on this, but um, what are the some of the things that you may think are some of the key points in determining whether the aircraft is airworthy?
4: I, I mean, I think you know Tom. Probably, I couldn't have said it any better than Tom did. I mean, if they're uh, if they're open uh, with you, I know. Uh, the place where I fly, the dispatch, you know, they give you a book, and right on the cover of the book, there's, you know, when the next hundred hours due, when the last oil change was. It's, it's that openness and, and trustworthiness that people are doing what they need to be doing. I think that was a great point. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. gosh, this has been a great discussion. I really, I know we're going to get a lot of feedback on whether the aircraft is airworthy. Notice we didn't get too technical. We did a little bit, but we tried not to, because this is more. It's, it's a philosophy, and it's actually something that that we need to put forth there because of this. This accident that happened It's its really something that I've been hearing a lot of discussion about I know going forward we're going to hear more about it And we'll bring you some news as to what the NTSB comes up with And their final reports, etc uh, But we're not jumping to any kind of judgment But I think um, And this really It really was a little bit emotional for me Because of the fact that It's one of those things you wish You hope never happens And it really It's bothersome to see You know, a check airman and a student to, to lose their life in this instance. And uh, we hope this doesn't happen, you know, going forward. Uh, so there really is, it's, you know, accidents happen. There's maintenance accidents that ha- happen. And there's there's things that we see that are caused by maintenance, et cetera. Uh, most of them are not in that manner. It's something that we, uh, you, you know, a lot of times it's the pilot that's causing the accident. But one of the ways that we can prevent that, that happening as far as the mechanical errors, et cetera, is determining whether our aircraft is a uh, really airworthy is it really airworthy and uh... that has to do both with compliance on a actual legal sense uh... and also compliance from a more practical sense and it re- it's a lot about trust and uh, a lot about using your judgment when you're either purchasing owning renting uh... it's really it's really up to you going back to that. it's still the pilot-in-command that's that has to determine whether it's airworthy Anyway, i would love to hear your feedback uh, on this. Uh, you know, contact at stuckmikeavcast.com dot com and also uh, stuckmikeavcast at gmail dot com. Whew, boy, this is this has been a you know kind of a difficult one, I think, uh, because of the fact that it is kind of close to the accident, and it's something that w- you know we as pilots, you know, there's something in our, our base feeling that we would never ever. Want to see a wing come off our aircraft, uh, and we hope this never does happen again. And going forward with all the investigations, etc., I think we hope, and, uh, and it will happen, that things will get safer because of the fact that we will re- evaluate what happened and make corrections and move forward. And and that's that's my hope, and that's I know that'll happen. And uh, you know, I have a really, uh, I have a big trust in the system. That's for sure.
0: Our picks of the week.
1: Well, anyway, let's move on to our uh, picks of the week today uh, in our after landing checklist. Uh, I think uh, Bill English had a really when I mentioned something about New Jersey had something interesting in in his pick of the week. Bill, what is your pick of
4: the week? I, I did. You know your your picture there oh, it was that's a great picture. You know, like the kid hanging on the fence. That's that's awesome. And you you know you mentioned how the airport has gone and. You know, just all too often uh, we keep hearing about this, right? Our airports are disappearing, and it's kind of sad. But my pick of the week is a website, and the it's it's called uh, Abandoned Airfields. Uh, I've got the web the website in the show notes. The airfields dash. Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N, that's the person's name, dot com. And it is a collection of materials uh, about airports that are no longer with us. Like I said, it's pretty sad, but some great history. I also put in the direct link for Basking Ridge Airport, which apparently was built in 1932. All kinds of great history about it is uh, in in, in the page for that. So a great place to browse around. You might look at a town that you live in or lived in, and uh, an airport you might you know I've known that closed up and I can find some uh, awesome history in there <laughs>
1: well awesome I appreciate that and I actually linked to it and uh, you know that's where I grew up and that's such a cool little uh, picture of that airport every day driving or riding I shouldn't say my bicycle by that airport it just got me so excited about aviation fortunately never got to fly out of there I was, I was too young to uh, do my training out of there at the or excuse me when it when it got taken away I was I was too young to afford it then, but it got taken away, and I had to go somewhere else. But I went to Somerset Airport, which was not far away from that. This is Somerset Hills, so that was awesome. Uh, thanks for that Pick of the Week, and thanks for doing that, uh, Bill. Uh, my Pick of the Week actually kind of spurns from that. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually, and we've done this one before. It's by Rinker Buck, and it's called Flight of Passage, a memoir. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. It's well over 30 years back. Where uh, this person named Rinker Buck, he took a plane uh, with somebody else, his brother, and they're 15 and 17 when they did this flight from Basking solo solo, du- I should say, duo, I should say, across country uh, from New Jersey to California. And uh, he actually grew up in an aviation family, and they both bought this old Cub. This is so cool. They restored the Cub themselves, and then they went from Somerset hills airport in basking ridge and flew it across the country and i have a little tie to this because the the rinker bunker was actually a, a a patient of my dad's and my dad's the one that actually took the picture of me sitting out there in front of the airport in front of that airplane uh so an amazing journey an amazing memoir he's an incredible writer he's come out with some other books uh so i'll have a link to it it's called flight of passage a memoir by rinker buck well anyway moving on to our next pick of the week is rick what is your pick of the week rick
2: yeah, and that is that is a great book, <laughs> it really is mm-hmm. fun read. Um, yeah, mine is uh, an app, and it's iOS only, unfortunately. Um, it's by a company called Rate of Climb Industries. They they have um, they have another app that I've uh, used a bunch, and I may have talked about before, called Deep Weather, which is really a nice um, orga- organized display of the weather forecast. Uh, that we, that we, you know, that as a student I read it, it in text and found very confusing. Anyway, but they've got a nice organized app for that, and that's called Deep Weather. But that's not my pick, because when I was looking at that one, I discovered an app that they've had out for a while, and it's called Density Altitude Plus. And I don't know if any of you use that. Um, but basically, it's, it's made possible since the Generation 6 iPhone, because that iPhone and all the ones since then have had barometers. So um, it integrates... Uh, data, weather data from forecast.io um, uses the GPS, you know, to confirm both you know your altitude and where you are, and, and the barometer, and basically generates the density altitude uh, without needing to cool. be connected to anything. I, I, it must track the data because it's saying it doesn't need to be online, but. Um, Yeah, so right now here in uh, Natick tonight, it's 78 degrees, um, and I'm at about 251 feet GPS altitude, and the density altitude is 1,505 feet. Uh, And it gives the altimeter setting and the absolute pressure number.
1: Well, that's awesome. You said it's an iOS
2: only, you said? Yeah, unfortunately it is. I like to say that because I know there's a lot of people that uh, have other devices, but right now I'm pretty sure all their stuff is iOS only. All right. So it's a, it's a small little it's it doesn't do anything but this but when you open it there's your density altitude, <laughs> which is and I would say safe best to check with other sources and do other calculations to verify but uh, but it's pretty neat.
1: Awesome! I was trying to find how much is this app? Do you know? Is
2: it a dollar ninety
1: nine? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah that's i mean like all apps it's very inexpensive usually so that's cool i'm gonna have to yeah. get that one
2: i mean it practically uh, could be free these guys are in you know they're making money so. yeah, yeah so. <laughs> they have a number of apps and they bundle them they have, they have a, a zulu time app that i was almost going to buy except i'm not sure how seamlessly it integrates with the watch people were complaining that they expected their watch to just be on zulu but i think you have to I don't know. You have to look. You have to you know open the app to see the Zulu time. So that seemed kind of silly, but um, anyway, yeah, density Density. altitude plus
1: density altitude. All right. Well, we'll have a a link to that in the show notes. There. Thanks. Appreciate that, Rick. That's cool. Uh, Because you just flip it open. There's your density altitude. Awesome. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Our next pick of the week is uh, Tom. What is your pick of the week?
3: Yeah. So I was perusing through some of my uh, aviation literature. And came across a book that I I picked this thing up when I was working on my private and um, the name of the book is 101 um, private pilot things to do with your private pilot license um, and you know I I bought this when I was first learning I thought well cool you know once I get this I want to see what I can do with it and and there was this amazing list of things on there that like almost seemed foreign to me at the time and um, you know I was perusing through the other day and I picked this thing up and I was actually looking through the list and man um, it's amazing how far I've come and how many of these things I've actually done and and um, perused through and it got me to thinking you know I mean that's that's something to share about you know whether you're starting out on this whether you're, you've been flying a long time and just going through and trying to find something that uh, you know going out and flying general aviation airplanes and 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 doing uh, what it is we love to do is you know being low and slow if that's what you like or get, just getting from from point a to point b as quick as you can but um getting around and, and flying and this this uh book kind of was reminiscing with it so i thought it'd be a great pick of the week to share it
1: well tom i think that's an awesome pick of the week i'm actually perusing the table of contents and i was looking for the chapter how to convince your spouse to buy an airplane and I think I could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not in there, but all these different 101 ideas and things you can do. There's some really cool ones, especially the whole chapter on uh, just going out on your own, taking a vacation. Well,
3: what What amazes me about this book? I mean, it, it's this the one that's available is a third. Edition, and I mean that was published in uh, 2004. So I mean, some of the some of the uh, lingo in there may be a little dated, but um, the ideas are still pertinent, and and you know it's it's still good information. So like I said, I just kind of I looked at it and thought, well, even though it's an old book, it it's still worth reading.
1: Well, it's dated like myself. I think I'll understand it. That's great, Tom. Appreciate. It. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think is important when you do have a significant other is is try to convince them. You know, what you want to do and and why? And sometimes we don't know how to do that. But looking through these chapters, it's like, oh my gosh, these are all the reasons I like to fly. And if I could just get my spouse to look at it, and my wife say, hey, look, these are the cool things we can do with our license. Uh, it's it's something that I think would would really really rejuvenate the whole you know v- adventure of flying because we have to do that every so often. Sometimes we get stuck with doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe it's time to go fly to a, a new little island or some historic place and go discover something but 101 private uh, things to do with your private pilots license will help you on that journey so that was really cool tom thanks for thanks for that pick of the week well, gosh, that's uh, that's it for today's show, and uh, I really appreciate uh, everybody listening, and also would love to hear your feedback about this. Go to stuckmikeavcast.com and click contact. Send us some information or questions, et cetera. Of course, you can go to the show notes and, and click on that. And also, if you want to see the picture of the airport there with me standing there with my my hands gripping the, the, <laughs> the fence, me looking at the airplane saying, oh, my God, that's cool, uh, you know, get, check that picture out. I think I was about – we're trying to figure out the age there, I think. It was like anywhere between eight and eleven or something like that. Probably a little closer to eight, uh, but uh, really, really a lot of fun putting this episode together. I've learned a lot from the other co-hosts here. I hope you have, and I know you have a lot of input as far as you know determining whether your aircraft is airworthy. Well, folks, I really appreciate your listening. We'll talk to you next next episode, and safe flying.
0: You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast.